Hello and welcome to The Transfer Window, the podcast that brings you the news before it becomes news, as well as insight analysis on all the topics you're discussing in football. I'm Ian McGarry, and with me as always is Duncan Castles. It was a huge weekend in the English Premier League, and we are going to get straight into that after a bit of news. Especially, we're going to bring you the definitive, we believe, and forensic analysis of that handball at Anfield on Sunday. But first, a bit of news on the managerial merry-go-round. You'll all be familiar with the term we've been using, which is the twilight zone of the November international break. Interestingly, Duncan, uh, our sources are telling us that both Ralph Hasenhutl at Southampton and Manuel Pellegrini at West Ham will be given more time uh, to, uh, well, not just keep their job, but try and make the job safer than it is right now, with both clubs dreadfully underperforming, especially in Pellegrini's case with the investment that was made in new players last summer. So it looks like those two might survive the twilight zone and even get themselves into the January transfer window. Meanwhile, things at Everton improve, again, slightly with the 2-1 win at St Mary's. Um, however, Duncan, you're hearing that perhaps there's still a little bit of, well, not just a little bit, but a lot of scepticism about Marco Silva's future in the longer term. Yes, I mean, we talked about this in, in some detail on Wednesday's podcast to answer a listener's question about where Everton were. Um, and he was asking whether they were relegation fodder. And obviously the, the result, that narrow win against Southampton is very important to giving them a bit of breathing space there. What I said on Wednesday was that the, the board do not want to dismiss Marco Silva. They feel like they have a lot invested in that appointment after um, previous changes of management, but we're coming to a, a feeling that they might have to make a change and had certainly been um, exploring options as a, a replacement. You reported um, a couple of weeks ago now that uh, a, a question had been put to uh, Max Allegri as to whether he would be interested in taking on that job. Um, wasn't clear whether that had come directly mandated by Everton or whether that was an agent uh, looking to provide an option to Everton um, in, the, in the, the feeling that they, they might change. I know other agents have presented names of um, experienced Premier League managers to Everton and suggested that, that uh, there would be good appointments if they do need to change Marco Silva. What I'm hearing is that there is a lot of interest from the Everton end in Mikel Arteta as a candidate um, should they need to make that change. And, and this makes a lot of sense because Arteta's um, status in the game is very high. He has not managed as yet, but he's been credited with being an important part of Manchester City's um, treble winning campaign last season as um, Pep Guardiola's principal assistant. He was, of course, a strong candidate for the Arsenal job um, before they decided to appoint Unai Emery. And um, a lot of Arsenal supporters would have preferred Arteta, obviously a former Arsenal player, to come in uh, and take control of the club um, instead of Emery. Arteta, obviously a former Everton player as well. 
Um, and so it, it's not hard to see why that is a name that would be being considered by Everton, given that Arsenal took um, him as a serious candidate for the job, given that we've heard that he's highly regarded by Manchester City and, and considered as someone who may be a future replacement for Pep Guardiola when the inevitable happens and Pep Guardiola decided decides he's had enough of English football and had enough of Manchester and wants to move on to the next um, super affluent club with incredible playing resources to try and win the Champions League there. So I, I think this is one to pay attention to um, and see how it develops with Everton and see whether Arteta would be interested in that role. I would imagine um, that he's paying attention to what's going on at Arsenal at the moment. We've reported that um, Arsenal are considering um, making a change of manager. You've reported extensively on the um, the upset within the dressing room, the confusion that's being caused by Emery's um, poor English language skills and uh, the decisions he's made over um, things, for example, such as like Grant Jacka's um, demotion as captain and uh, removal from the first team. Um, should say Arsenal's uh, official position from an Arsenal spokesperson is that we are not looking for a new coach at this stage um, however uh, the word in football and the, the general consensus around that and the actions of people at the club is that they are indeed looking for a new manager um, preparing a list of candidates and uh, doing the groundwork um, should they make a decision that Emery has to go either during this season or at the end of the season when there is a break clause in his three-year contract and they would be able to remove him from the role at limited expense to themselves. And interestingly, Duncan, um, you'll have seen, as I did, a lot of reporting over the last 24 hours, um, which you can only assume has come from the club itself, that Emery is, and I quote, 100% safe and that he is not in danger of being sacked and that the board at Arsenal want to give him time. Now, Either that is uh, something which they're hoping will uh, take off the edge of speculation or it's the dreaded vote of confidence. I think it's take off the edge of speculation. What I have heard from an independent source is that Unai Emery is very nervous um, about the reports of his future um, and nervous about his uh, position at the club. And I think in those circumstances, you it wouldn't be surprising if Emery had gone to um, the head of football at Arsenal, Raul Sanyehi, and um, director of football, Edu, and asked for reassurances about his future and then um, for a report to come out that he is 100% safe. Um, in that role, albeit with no um, uh, official um, written uh, statement from the club to that effect, is the kind of thing that you often see in these circumstances. And, um, you know, if you're Arsenal, um, you want Emery to work. That This, this um, hierarchy has a lot invested in Emery. Um, because that is the man they chose to replace Arsene Wenger, which, remember, is a big, big call in Arsenal's history. There's also a lot invested in terms of the squad they've put together for him. Um, it would be better for him, for them, if Unai Emery can achieve their um, explicitly stated goal of qualifying for the Champions League this, this um, season. Um, but it, if it's not going to happen, 
then this is the kind of period in which you would ex fully expect Arsenal to be thinking and preparing for circumstances in which they have to change coach. I mean, even even if they want him to get to the end of the season and even if this briefing uh, that they will make a decision on the renewal or the, or the, the continuance of his contract at the summer is correct. That's not actually very far away. I mean, we're talking six months to the end of the season and in, and in football, um, particularly when you're, when you're looking at high-level managers, this is very much the period in which those managers who are out of work and on sabbatical, guys like Max Allegri, are being sounded out, are talking to candidate clubs and quite often um, come to contractual, pre-contractual agreements to, to manage those clubs. You only have to look at what happened with Pep Guardiola in Manchester City. Um, this was the period. In fact, um, I remember writing for the Sunday Times that um, he had uh, agreed to join Manchester City um, and I think it was probably in the November um, before uh, he formally started that, um, that that news came to me and um, yeah, the news leaked out. Um, you'll remember Manuel Pellegrini was very upset with it because he was being asked about his future in every press conference. The club wanted to keep it quiet because... Um, uh, Guardiola was at, at Bayern Munich at the time and there were complications for both their own season and Bayern Munich's season if, if they made a, a formal announcement and eventually Manuel Pellegrini just said look I've had enough of this I'm going to talk about it in a press conference I'm going to make it public you guys deal with the fallout because I'm tired with having uh, to answer these questions every single press conference when it's got nothing to do with me who you want to have coach the club next season and of course, it was that wonderful conversation at the Bayern Munich Christmas party, where Lederhosen are indeed the <laughs> <laughs> the choice of uh, costume for most people. And after a few steins were downed, Karl Heinz Rubinegger basically went up to Pep Guardiola and said, "So is it true? Are you going to the Premier League?" Pep said, "Yes." He said, "Where?" He said, "Manchester." Rumenega said United or City and he said I think you know the answer to that question and that was <laughs> at the Christmas party so there you go Leader Hosensteins in Manchester City you couldn't make it up now we couldn't go anywhere else except to Anfield on Sunday afternoon when the most significant match of this season's Premier League was played between Liverpool and Manchester City at the time uh, Liverpool, before kickoff, were six points ahead and had the opportunity to extend that to nine. Um, they duly did so, but in extremely controversial circumstances. And of course, who was at the heart of it? Our old friend, Valerie, V-A-R. Now, we're going to ask you to bear with us here because we're going to do this, as I promised, forensic analysis of what the Premier League believed to be the rules that they imply and indeed what IFAB, the International Football Association Board, also have a view on this and both do not actually dovetail very well. We're going to call it Schrodinger's handball after the famous Austrian Nobel Prize winning physicist Erwin Schrodinger. And I'm going to give you um, a little, a very, very sort of quick explanation of what Schrodinger, unfortunately for him, is the most famous for because it's his paradox. Um, and I'm just going to quote Schrodinger, his own version of it. And he said, in simple terms, if you place a cat and something that could kill that cat, i.e. a radioactive atom or indeed a fatal poison, in a box and sealed it, you would not know if the cat was dead or alive until you opened the box. 
So until the box was opened, the cat was, in a sense, both dead and alive. How does this apply to Trent Alexander's handball? Well, I'm going to hand over to Duncan now because he's going to talk about not being dead and alive, but I think he's going to talk about the ball being active, or sorry, play being active or non-active and how that affected an effect and indeed probably had a major, major impact on the outcome of the Liverpool City game. Duncan, over to you and Mr Schrodinger. And not just the Liverpool and, and City game, and we were talking here about the, the most anticipated, probably most important game in this Premier League season, um, which is pro- very good chance we'll decide the, the determination of the title. Um, and very good chance now that Liverpool will win their first Premier League title and their first English title for 30 years, all because of a law that was changed um, under pressure from the English uh, football authorities in March last year. And I I, um, urge you to go back to our podcast in March when we discussed this law change and we talked about how... um, dangerously drafted the law was um, and the way they changed the handball to be conditional depending on what happens afterwards i.e. whether a goal is scored or whether a goal um, scoring opportunity is created and predicted that it would cause chaos and controversy because of the way they'd framed the law. So this is the new, the, the essence of the new handball law that was introduced in the summer. It is that it's an offence if a player deliberately touches the ball with their hand arm, including moving the hand arm towards the ball, or gains possession control of the ball after it has touched their hand arm and then scores in the opponent's goal or creates a goal-scoring opportunity. Why is this relevant to what happened on Sunday? Well, uh, Bernardo Silva... Um, has the ball cannon off his arm after the defender, I think Dejan Lovren, uh, clears it off him. That ball then travels some distance and hits um, Trent Alexander-Arnold's arm. And and Trent Alexander-Arnold is on record as saying it hit his arm in the post-match interview. Um, Alexander-Arnold's arm is away from his body. Uh, which is another element of the the new handball law, um, whether the, the your arm is out of a natural position um, when you touch it. It would, I think, under most people's interpretation of the law, being given as a handball, because it looks like he brings hand to arm, um, certainly stops a very promising situation for uh, Manchester City, Sergio Aguero immediately appeals to the referee and stops playing um, for the penalty. Um, the ball is then uh, taken by Liverpool up the other end of the field after three or four passes. There is a, 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 an attempt to clear that falls to Fabinho, who hits a remarkable shot into the bottom corner of Manchester City net. Um, the whole thing is reviewed by VAR. The VR decision is no handball, no penalty against Alexander-Arnold and that the goal for Liverpool is good. Um, you can actually have multiple different interpretations of what of the decision that should have been given um, on this uh, sequence of play because of Schrodinger's handball law. So if um, Alexander-Arnold is deemed to be a handball, which, as I say, most people, I think, 
and most pundits agreed should have been given a handball. Then VAR would go back to the Bernardo Silva touch um, ricochet off his arm and say, well, it hit his arm, creating a goal-scoring opportunity, a penalty. Therefore, the penalty is cancelled out. Therefore, it's a free kick for Liverpool. If it's a free kick for Liverpool, you have to stop play and Liverpool's goal cannot count because you've given a free kick to Manchester City, an obligatory free kick for creating a goal-scoring opportunity off the arm. Um, This in itself is controversial because it, it depends on a very strict interpretation of this new handball law that the Premier League have tried to apply, which is rather than the, the conditional actual writing of the law, which is that you have to gain possession and control of the ball and then um, score an opponent goal or create a goal-scoring opportunity, the, the Premier League interpretation is if the ball hits an arm off an attacker and then goes in the net or a goal-scoring um, opportunity is created, it will always be a foul. Now, I, we, we saw this happen in the um, Tottenham uh, Manchester City game second week of the season uh, Merrick Laporte being penalised for a handball that nobody saw in the initial play nobody appealed for glanced off his arm at high speed Gabriel Jesus scores subsequent to that um, the goal is chopped off it's, um, it was uh, hailed by the Premier League as a triumph for VAR that they'd spotted it and, and applied the new rule correctly um, but the question is did Laporte in that case, gain possession or control of the ball. Well, he clearly didn't because it ricochets off him, just as Bernardo Silva clearly didn't gain possession or control of the ball on Sunday because it ricocheted off him. I put a question into IFAB about the framing of the law um, subsequent to that incident and asked um, whether it was necessary to gain possession or control of the ball. I also asked what the situation would be if... The ball ricochets off a defender, such as Alexander-Arnold, or he gains possession or control of the ball um, by bringing an arm to hand. And then the ball goes down the other end of the field and one of his teammates scores. Because then the, the player whose arm it has hit goes from being a defender to attacker and um, creates a goal-scoring opportunity. So under the new law, that should be a foul. And I was asking, do you then give a penalty for for that in those circumstances. The reply I got from David Ellery, who's the technical director of IFAB, is if the ball is in contact with an attacker's hand arm and subsequently the ball falls to a teammate who scores or has a chance to score, then this is handball. So he's telling me that in all circumstances in which a ball hits a player's arm and his teammate goes on to score or... Um, or has a chance to score if it is handball and a foul should be given. So apply that to Sunday's situation. Um, You can argue, which is Michael Oliver's argument and the Premier League's stated position that Trent Alexander-Arnold's movement of arm to ball did not meet the criteria for a penalty and that Oliver and the VAR gave a correct decision by not giving a penalty to Manchester City. If that's your argument, under the Ellery interpretation, because Alexander-Arnold touches the ball and Liverpool then score, 
that Liverpool's goal should be cancelled. A free kick has to be given for Alexander-Arnold's handball because a goal has been created after it. The free kick happens, happened in the penalty box, so it becomes a penalty. So you've actually got an incident in which under the same interpretation of the same incident, Michael Oliver's interpretation that Alexander-Arnold's handball was unintentional, it is first not a penalty um, because for the, the, the bounce of Bernardo Silva, but because Liverpool score as a result of gaining possession through that handball, it is a penalty because it's created a goal. And that's how ridiculous this new law is. That's how ridiculous the framing of the law is. That's the problems that are caused by making handball conditional. Um, there is no right answer to this. That It can be both a handball and not a handball under the same law. A penalty and not a penalty under the same law. A goal for one team and, uh, and a probable goal for the other team under the same law. It is the most horrendous mess I've ever seen in football lawmaking, and VAR obviously has not uh, helped with that situation in the slightest. And hence, the analogy of Schrodinger, because the ball was both dead and alive at the same time, as the cat was dead and alive at the same time. The ball was alive until Liverpool scored the goal, and then the ball's dead, because it has to go back to be resuscitated <laughs> in the Liverpool box and a penalty given to Manchester City. Now, we also, I would like to point out as well, in, in the course of law, i.e. not football law, um, law always looks to legal precedent with regards to these situations and, and asks the question, has a decision been given which is contrary to the one which I'm being asked to support or judge upon? And here we go, September 2018, San Jose Earthquakes versus Atalanta United in the MLS. San Jose are attacking the Atlanta United end. Um, a cross is put in and Atlanta defender handles the ball. From that position, Atlanta go up the other end of the, the uh, pitch and score a goal. The referee of that match then goes to VAR. He goes to his monitor, of course, which is very unusual in the Premier League. He takes the, the um, phase of play back to the initial penalty claim. He chalks off the Atlanta United goal, who were winning 3-1 at the time and awards a penalty to San Jose Earthquakes, which they score, it goes to 3-2, and eventually win 4-3. Again, a match-defining moment, and a precedent for what happened at Anfield on Sunday. Now, again, the Premier League have discouraged, if not banned, referees from using pitch-side monitors to aid their decision on the field, because they feel it will take up even more time. And yet, Duncan, we saw an offside review at Tottenham Sheffield United on Saturday, which took almost four minutes. So how can the referee going to a monitor to look for himself about his decision? Is, is it really going to disturb the game that much? Not, not in circumstances where you know four minutes, the best part of four minutes are being um, taken to make a decision. I think there are definite problems with going to pitch side monitors, and you know, you know, my basic argument on this is VAR is not something that can be fixed. Whichever way you set it up, it will cause problems and it will con cause controversy. And you know, the kind of the the fundamental reason for the controversy this weekend is the law. The law changes what has caused the problem here, and and you know we picked we picked that up in March and said this is going to cause a problem for football, 
and you know the grand irony is that it's the biggest game of the season, the the defining, um, what possibly defining match because you, Liverpool are now in a position where it absolutely is their title to lose, um, and it'll be interesting to see how Manchester City respond to that game because you, not only do they have the complaint over that handball, they have a complaint over another Alexander Arnold handball later in the game when they're chasing it, um, a foul shoving the back of Raheem Sterling. Um, in the penalty area again when they're chasing the game, um, not a single Liverpool player booked during the match. You know, there, there's plenty of things for for them to moan about and, and justifiably uh, complain about uh, in this game. Um, and you're just getting mistake after mistake and controversy added on top because VAR should be there to resolve these situations and it just isn't um you know the same day the very same day we have this decision in handball um you have the same law being failed to be applied in the manchester united game where harry Maguire goes up uh, with the brighton defender the ball comes down hits his arm and uh, drops um and and is bundled over the line by by uh, a, a brighton player eventually well, well so that, it, it's interesting duncan because remember what you You've told us already that is if a player gains possession or advantage for goal scoring opportunity by use of his arm, then it must be a foul. Now, Maguire did that with his arm and it falls to McTominay when the Brighton goalkeeper, Matty Ryan, is expecting it to come to his arms. And it's McTominay who then pushes the ball towards the goal line and then it's Davy Proper who inadvertently puts into his own net. So again... VR has failed because it's not applying the IFAB rules. Yeah, and uh, it, you can go both ways in this one. You can have the, um, the, the sort of natural reading of the new handball law um, and, and argue that, uh, in this case, Maguire did gain possession control of the ball. Um, after it touched his arm. You can have an argument over it. Certainly much, he's much more, there's a much stronger case to say Maguire gained possession control of the ball than Bernardo Silva did. But regardless of that, under the Premier League, under the David Ellery version, if the ball hits an arm and a goal is scored, it is a foul. There is no debate over how, whether possession is is gained, whether control is gained. They want it to be absolute. Therefore, that should not have been a goal. And on the same day, we have this controversy at the most important match in the Premier League. A goal is allowed in, in similar circumstances. It's, it's a catastrophic mess. Uh, but the, the question I, I have to ask to you um, as a student of philosophy is, was the name of Schrodinger's cat David Ellery? <laughs> You know what? Uh, if only Schrodinger was alive. He died in 1961. I'd love to ask him that question. Maybe even David Eller was born by that time. Let's hope so. To uh, just to complement the transfer window's trademarking of its Liverpool title to lose, statistics tell us that um, after 12 games, only two teams have had the advantage of the lead which Liverpool now possess. That was Manchester City in 1819 when they went on to win the title having had an eight-point lead. And Manchester United way back in 93-94 had a nine-point lead after 12 games and went on to win the title. Liverpool eight-point lead over uh, both Leicester and Chelsea at this point. 
So um, having looked at our timeline, and obviously hundreds of you are, and a lot of the Liverpool fans seem to be very upset that we're still talking about Alexander-Arnold and handball. I would just like to say to you, you're eight points clear. You won 3-1. Chill out. Enjoy. Celebrate. It's great. Don't get annoyed. It's fine. <laughs> so take my advice and uh, enjoy it while you can. Uh, and it is your tale to lose. Um, in terms of other game analysis, Duncan, I think um, the manner in which they, certainly the second and third goal were conceded by Manchester City, both to cross balls. Um, yet again, I think we're seeing City pay the price for having a very, very under uh, par defence um, with regard to, well, it's all over the place now. It's not just even at centre-back now, is it? We had um, Claudio Bravo on goal. Cal Walker was at least a metre away from Sadio Mane when the third goal was headed in. And uh, they were all at sea for Mo Salah's uh, second goal as well. And for all Pep's bravado after the game about, I'm so proud of my team. That's why we're champions. We've come to the best team in Europe now or the best team in the world and the most difficult stadium, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm so proud, blah, blah. I think he's deflecting slightly from the fact that even though they could claim grievance in terms of decisions in VAR, basically lost down to the fact that they just can't defend properly. Yes, Kyle Walker so far away from Sadio Mane that he didn't have to dive in this particular circumstance, <laughs> which would have been fun. Even, I mean, we, 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 we would have liked to see Sadio Mane dive in a controversial circumstance in but this what match just done was, to see. Having scored, he should have gone in front of the City <laughs> bot, their bench and dived <laughs> as a celebration. <laughs> um, look, uh, Owen Hargreaves made a very good point about that's in his post-match analysis, that's harsh, um, of, uh, of this game. And he said, when Manchester City get involved in a shootout with a top team, i.e. they open up and they try to outscore a top team, it usually goes badly for them. And talked about how that's been their downfall in Champions League in recent seasons. And I think he, he's got a point there. I was I was discussing it with someone after the match and he was complaining that Guardiola had uh, had played too high a line and left himself open to Liverpool. And I, I, I have sympathy with that point of view, but I also think it's very hard to analyse in this particular game because... The game was perverted by the refereeing decision um, for the penalty. The first goal in a match of this significance between two such well-matched teams is always hugely important. Um, City started really well in this game. They were definitely um, more aggressive than than many people expected. They set up in a in a very aggressive fashion with uh, sort of two holding midfield, not in their usual shape, two holding midfielders. Um, Kevin De Bruyne effectively playing as a as a free roaming number ten um, behind Aguero. They created a huge amount of chances even early in the match. Again, it's a little, it, it's quite hard to judge because once. Liverpool scored twice, then obviously it's easy for them to sit back and allow City to attack more. But the feeling you had about the game was that City were really stretching Liverpool and were going to cause problems and and going to create chances. There's no doubt he took a risk in the way he played. Um, And normally I would say 
you're you've got to be very brave to go up against Liverpool and try and uh, play on the front foot um, and leave yourself open to be counter-attacked by Liverpool because they love playing that way. And, and Liverpool's defence, while not putting together the clean sheets that they put together last season, they don't concede very often. So you're you're you know you're really counting on yourself to stop them from scoring more than one. But on the other hand, I'm not sure he had an option. You know, we, we saw him go to Anfield last season, play for a nil-nil, um, play very defensively, change his normal way, normal style of playing, basically pass the ball around the, his own 18-yard box um, and try and sucker Liverpool into him and get past their high press that way. And it, and it killed the game. Uh, so it worked as a strategy. But I don't think he could have done that yesterday, first, because they were already six points behind. And secondly, because, as you say, his defence was very badly manned. So he would have to put faith in his second choice defence to play the ball around the back like that. And more importantly, have faith to play it around the back with Claudio Bravo and go, who's not Ederson. So you'd be be asking for... um, a goal to be given away under pressure from Liverpool strikers and and put yourself in a horrendous position. So I, I, I don't think you can criticise Guardiola for the way he set up there because I think it was the percentage move given the personnel he had. And I think it, it looked like it was working until we had the decision that changed the course of the game. So... I think it's, it's tough to criticise him there. I think it's interesting the way he went straight up to the officials, each of the on-field officials after the match, and very deliberately sh- shook their hands and said, thank you so much, thank you so much, to all three of them in a sarcastic manner. Um, I think that, you know, in, in a situation like that where you feel so aggrieved, that's probably the cleverest way of doing something like that and getting your point across to the officials because I don't think the FA can punish him for it, even though everyone knows. And certainly those three knew what he meant when he was saying thank you so much. I'm pretty sure there's, there is no law nor fine against sarcasm. Um, and long may that be the case in terms of freedom of speech <laughs> for coaches, because if we're going to go down that road, then we really are on the road uh, to oblivion. Um I'll say this as well, though, Duncan, and this is something I thought I would never say and probably a lot of Manchester City fans thought they would never hear. Bad move selling Fabian Delph. <laughs> Why? <laughs> well, listen, I, did, I thought Angelino did well going forward yesterday, but I just, you know, he didn't. He, wasn't, he was absent at the most important moments of the game when Liverpool were attacking and scoring goals. Whereas Fabian Delph tended to fill in pretty well left back and was dependable. Um, and yeah, okay, look, he wasn't getting massive game time and he probably wanted to move to Everton and everything else. But still, um, if he'd been there, he'd have played because obviously Sinchenko was sitting in the stands injured. And I think I think Fabian Delft's reputation was never higher than when he was playing in an exceptionally good Manchester City team and filling in at left back. And people decided he was the best left back in England until England actually played him there. Um, <laughs> yeah, true. Uh, I, I, look, we've got to say, Liverpool, although they had everything go for them yesterday, they were um, ruthless and hyper-efficient in taking their chances and uh, once again completely focused on performing the way they needed to perform in a key game and getting the result. So um, it's very easy to 
to complain about the way the game was officiated and it is you know those those complaints are justified it's horrendous that the most important game of the Premier League season is mired in such controversy because of a a, a terribly written law and and a bad application of the law but Liverpool did what they needed to do extremely well and once again showed what a force they are um, not just from an attacking perspective but as a team a, a kind of you know a mental entity that um, manages to um, come out of these games with positive results and this one is it's such a huge advantage to them to to have this lead over City um, at this stage in the season and you know the question is what happens to City next because we know how fragile Pep Guardiola is as an individual um, and you wonder um, if the next round of games they go and play Chelsea and have another bad result, um, how bad can it get for them from a mental perspective? Well, indeed, um, I think Leicester and Chelsea fans uh, listening to the podcast will be asking us and thinking to themselves, well, are we not now the rightful challengers to Liverpool? Um both had uh, another good result uh, on the weekend. Leicester winning four of the last five Premier League games, Chelsea six in a row now. Uh, both of them are a point ahead of Manchester City. Looking, it uh, has to be said, very, very uh, competent at the back. Um, dangerous. Going forward, regards to scoring, scoring goals, um, Lesser's um, dismantlement of, of Arsenal was e- extremely impressive in the sense that um, they had to wait and bide their time. They had some chances, but they basically continued to play the, 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 um, the same game plan, Duncan. They didn't uh, in any way veer from what Brendan Rodgers asked them to do. And they were awarded with two really excellent goals. Um, and now, you know, I, I think Brendan Rodgers and Frank Lampard have both said, look, we can't be considered as championship material just yet because, you know, we're just starting off here. And, you know, Brendan Rodgers has been at Leicester now uh, since the spring of this uh, year. Obviously, Frank Lampard came in in the summer. So it would be an incredible achievement for either of those to go on and challenge Liverpool um, realistically, never mind win the title itself. But still... Um, I think your fans of those clubs must be very heartened by what they're seeing on the pitch and um, the consistency of results and indeed the personnel playing young players. Um, I thought um, uh, Pereira was incredibly uh, effective and has been for Leicester. A real find at right back, Duncan. Look, I, I, Leicester are playing very well. Um, you know, we've said that. Brendan Rodgers was very intelligent in taking that job when he did the quality of squad they've got. Um, he has certainly improved them and has certainly improved results. To argue that they have a chance to compete for the title, I think, is is way, way too much. Um, but you go through that first 11 um, and uh, go through it player by player, and, and think about the quality they have. It's uh, it's it's incredibly impressive at present. You're right. Uh, the defence, you know, Casper Michael is not he's not the best goalkeeper 
in the in the division. But he's certainly a, a quality goalkeeper who other top um, sides have looked at recruiting. Ben Chilwell, um, a player who would have a very high transfer value on his head. Um, Kagler Soyuncu, um, I have said multiple occasions already, I think he is an upgrade on Harry Maguire, um, who they got the highest transfer fee in the history of the game for a defender for. Johnny Evans, um, excellent uh, defender who Rogers went out of his way to praise this weekend. Yeah, Ricardo Pereira was a great signing. Wilfred Ndidi, um, one of the best holding midfielders in the division. James Madison, Manchester United, as you uh, reported during the, the transfer window, are interested in signing him as a, as a, a key creative player for them. Um, Yuri Tielemans, another top midfielder. Um, Harvey Barnes on the left, good, very talented uh, young English player. Jamie Vardy, as you say, probably in the form of his life. Um, and Iosi Perez, but who I have question marks over, but then they bring Damari Gray off the bench um, to break the game for them. And, and Damari Gray is another player that top Premier League clubs have tried to buy because um, they know uh, how talented he is and, and another young English player. So there's there, there's a lot of quality there. Um, at Chelsea, you can understand why the supporters are, are happy because they have one of their heroes in charge of the team. They have um, academy player after academy player finally being promoted into the team and proving themselves at the top level. Um, yeah, you've got a situation where they're actually calling for their transfer ban to be continued so the club aren't tempted into uh, making signings and changing the team that, that they have. So, yeah. That, that would um, be funny, Duncan. Chelsea fans petitioning the Court for Arbitration of Sport to not have <laughs> the ban lifted. <laughs> to be fair, though, Frank has made it very clear that it, he would find it difficult to go out in the January window and try and recruit uh, on the basis of two things. One, how do I tell the players who've done so well for me that their place is no longer secure or that, you know, I'm thinking about replacing them with someone else? And secondly, um, how where do they find the quality to replace what he's already got? Because even a player like Rhys James coming in right back, I mean, he's keeping Cesar Azpilicueta, who's the club captain, out of the team. And... Um, He's, he's been fantastic and he's only been playing for the last month because of injuries coming back. So got Loftus-Cheek to come back as well. And uh, Tammy Abraham scores another goal, puts him second in the Premier League scoring charts from the division as well. Uh, and Pulisic again scores and wonderful bit of skill where he dummied um, one of the Palace defenders uh, to make the slide and just unfortunately couldn't lift it over uh, the goalkeeper, but wonderful little vignette of skill. It was super, superb. Yeah, and Pulisic is someone that Lampard appears to have handed well. He was getting a lot of uh, questions over Pulisic not going straight into the team at the beginning of the season and, and picking academy graduates and, and some of the older players ahead of him. But he seems to have judged that nicely and that um, he's had that sort of slower adaptation process and brought him in gradually and um, and he's performed. He's starting performing consistently when he's in the team. So that, you have to argue, is, is good management. Um, Rhys James was someone who... Uh, a senior figure at Chelsea highlighted to me in the summer as 
a player that deserved his chance in the first team and should be retained for this season and given the opportunity to establish himself in the first team alongside guys that they knew were were going to um, be given proper opportunities like Mason Mount and, and Tammy Abraham. And um, it's all working very well for them. And you know, by the same token, that it's interesting to see how Guardiola and Manchester City respond in this next Premier League game to, to that defeat. It's also going to be really interesting to see how Lampard and Chelsea and that young team play how they set up against Manchester City and um, what kind of performance they can deliver against you know superior players even if, if even if Manchester City have those major defensive issues at present and and that's where you'd be looking for Chelsea to take advantage of them City have far better resources going into that game so that that's going to be another fascinating match and let's hope um, Schrodinger's David Ellery cat doesn't mess with that game too I'm tempted to call him Bagpuss. I'm not sure why. <laughs> only, only because Bagpuss always seem to be both alive and dead at the same time as well. <laughs> uh, anyway, one for you older listeners there. Uh, if not, you can uh, Google it wherever you like. So despite Liverpool's eight-point lead, it looks like we're going to have a Premier League title race, which may, may just turn out to be more exciting than last season's, where there was only two teams involved, which, of course, would be sensational for all of us who are watching uh, and waiting to see what the outcome will be. And on that note, remember that our next podcast this week is Your Questions Answered. So please, we invite you, we implore you, send your questions to at Transfer Podcast or at Duncan Castles or at Garbo SJ. And we will look at the best ones and the most relevant ones. And we will absolutely um, give you the shout out and do what we can to uh, enlighten you in any way. Uh, which we will be able to in terms of what you want to know and what your questions are. For today, uh, we just have heroes and villains to finish off. Um, Duncan, I'm going to go first with my hero of the weekend. And I must admit, his missus may be a villain, but Jamie Vardy is my hero. 20 goals in 22 games, his last 22 games. He's attributed that to the great Brendan Rodgers coaching skills and the way that he's um, allowed him to play his natural game again. I can't disagree with that, obviously. And um, he's just been sensational. And the, the, that goal, the first goal um, against Arsenal on Saturday evening was an absolute joy to behold in terms of the interplay playing uh, off each other. Uh, the side-back heel, Telemann's involved as well as um, Madison. It was just a joy to watch. And you know what? Just watching the goal celebrations of both um, both goals, Madison's and Vardy's, and the way the whole team came across, something lifted in me in terms of you know we we all sort of said when they won the title in twenty sixteen they gave us back football and they knew the fairy story and everything else and the joy of football, but there's something about this team performing that also comes across as the joy of being involved in a team where everyone's pulling it away and everyone's absolutely pulling in the same direction as well. And that's why I, I'm putting Vardy as my hero because he was at the, the focal point of that team on Saturday evening and also as the elder statesman of that team is someone who, who the young boys look up to. And yeah, I, I, I'm my, my, my hero. He may not be a hero ever again, um, but he's my hero for this week. And your villain? Look, there's so many. I would, I'd, I'd be tempted to go back to um, Gianluca Rocchi, um, the, the Italian referee who managed to send off 
two Ajax players in, in one incident that should have been a foul for Ajax and, and changed the course of the Champions League game against Chelsea last week. Um, obviously, Michael Oliver would be a, a strong candidate for his refereeing on Sunday, but I think um, this one goes to Steve McManaman, who was uh, discussing the game uh, for Premier League TV um, and... Uh, responding to Owen Hargreaves' complaint that he no longer understood what handball was because of the various um, interpretations (laughs) that we've um, we've we've suffered through this Premier League and Champions League season. McManaman announced that VAR had no impact on today's game at all. People are moaning now. You can see it. VAR is this. This has nothing to do with it. Nothing to do with it. We shouldn't even be talking about VAR when it comes to this goal. And I mean, you know, you obviously Steve McManaman is a Liverpool supporter. I, I had some Liverpool supporters trying to tell me he was impartial when he came to analysing Liverpool games, and particularly this game, because he'd also played for Manchester City. Um, interesting interpretation, that one. Obviously, he's a Liverpool supporter. Um, he obviously doesn't think it was handball, and he thinks the decision was correct. But it's just factually incorrect to say that VAR had no impact on the game. VAR made crucial decisions. Um, decided that it wasn't a penalty, decided that it shouldn't be pulled back for a free kick against Bernardo Silva because it was a, a goal-scoring opportunity, decided that it wasn't a penalty for the other side of Schrodinger's handball and that Alexander-Arnold had handled, leading to a goal for Liverpool. So VAR was intimately involved in this game. Everyone was talking about it for very obvious reasons. So to argue that it had no impact and it had nothing to do with it, it's just plain stupid I'm afraid we're going to wrap up this particular podcast now but obviously we invite you to continue the debate with us as I said before with regards to our, your questions answered on Wednesday please uh, just get in touch via our Twitter handles at Transfer Podcast at Duncan Castles at Garbo SJ if you like what you hear you know what to do Get on iTunes, give us a five-star review, and we all are much happier as a bigger group. Um, It just remains for me to say a goodbye from Duncan, uh, a goodbye from Schrodinger's Bagpuss, who probably already (laughs) has a Twitter account as we speak, uh, and from me, Ian McGarry. We shall see you through the transfer window on Wednesday. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 